Yes, that really was a pretty Patel dancer with Nigel Farage last night. Welcome to day three of Tory Party Conference. I'm Aaron Bastani. This evening I have the great joy of being joined by Helena, also known as No Justice MTG, here on YouTube. Helena, how are we? I'm doing very well, thank you. Great to be here. Looking forward to the show. I'm really looking forward to talking to you about today in particular. I have to say your debut on Navarra was brilliant, Helena. I messaged you straight afterwards. I messaged everybody. I messaged Michael, uh, the Slack, and I said, she's brilliant, let's get her back on. So I'm very happy to have you on this evening. Coming up later tonight, Rishi Sunak has had yet more excruciating interviews. It's not going well for him, is it? And Nigel Farage's changing relationship with the Tory party and all the wild things the Tories are saying to look in control. Spoiler alert, the whole thing is starting to look like a clown show. Stay tuned for all of that. The star turn at the Tory party conference today was Home Secretary Suella Braverman. She's widely expected to make a leadership bid after the next election. And she began her speech today by ramping up the rhetoric on one of the Tories' favourite topics. You guessed it, migration. Now, one of the most powerful forces reshaping our world is unprecedented mass migration. The wind of change that carried my own parents across the globe in the 20th century was a mere gust compared to the hurricane that is coming. Because today, the option of moving from a poorer country to a richer one is not just a dream for billions of people. It is an entirely realistic prospect. Every human Every single person has the right to aspire to a better life. As conservatives, that's one of the cornerstones of our philosophy. Indeed, without that dream, I wouldn't be standing before you today. But conservatives are also practical and realistic. Nobody can deny that there are far, far more people in poorer countries who would love to move to Britain than could ever be accommodated. Even, even if we concreted over the countryside, turned our cities into one vast building site and erected skyscrapers from Eastbourne to Elgin, from Hull to Holyhead, it still wouldn't be enough. Demand will always outstrip supply. I know it, you know it, and the voters know it. So what have we got there? Powerful forces, check. A quote, hurricane of migration, check. Somehow we've got aspiration too, check. Billions, billions of potential migrants, check. It's a bullshit Daily Mail royal flush, people. Soon, Braverman moved on to her audience's second favorite topic, human rights legislation. The truth is we struggle to remove foreign criminals. We struggle to get accurate data on the ages of the asylum seekers. We struggle even to confiscate their phones when they arrive on our beaches. Let me tell you, our country has become enmeshed in a dense net of international rules that were designed for another era. And it is Labour that turbocharged their impact by passing the misnamed Human Rights Act. I'm surprised they didn't call it the Criminal Rights Act. The Criminal Rights Act, apparently, that's how bad it is. You've been in charge for 13 years. You could have repealed it. You chose not to. What does that make you? Interestingly enough, many Conservatives use that same legislation when they're seeking protections around things like uh, freedom of speech or freedom of religious worship. Anyway, you might be asking, who's demanding open borders and limitless migration? Well, Braverman has a theory. I know there are some who think that emphasizing the importance of law and order or secure borders is unedifying. They look down on those of us who care about such things. Of course, they are entitled to their beliefs. But let's be honest, these are luxury beliefs. What do I mean by that? 
Our politically correct critics have money, they have status, they have loud voices. They have the luxury of promoting seductive but irresponsible ideas, safe in the knowledge that their privilege will insulate them from any collateral damage. The luxury beliefs brigade sit in their ivory towers, telling ordinary people that they are morally deficient because they dare to get upset about the impact of illegal migration, net zero, or habitual criminals. And you can be sure of one thing. People with luxury beliefs will flock to labor at the next general election because that's the way to get the kind of society they want. What is that? They want, and they like open borders. The migrants coming in won't be taking their jobs. In fact, they're more likely to have them mowing their lawns or cleaning their homes. They love soft sentences because the criminals who benefit from such ostentatious compassion won't be terrorizing their streets or grooming their children. They're desperate to reverse Brexit. They think patriotism is embarrassing and have no use for their British passport unless it's taking them to their second homes in Tuscany or the Dordogne. <laughs> for these people, I have a simple message. You are entitled to your luxury beliefs, but the British people will no longer pay for them. So according to Braverman, thinking that people should enjoy basic human rights and be treated with dignity is a luxury belief. And who is she describing there? People with money and status insulated from ordinary life with other people paid to mow their lawns and wash their dishes. People with second homes in France and their kids in private schools. But wait, doesn't this describe Tory donors? After all, Braverman herself is a Cambridge-educated lawyer who studied at the Sorbonne in Paris. Talk about projection. Meanwhile, if you thought money, favorable media allies, and actually being in power was the Tories' secret weapon in the next election, according to Braverman, you'd be wrong. There's another reason I think we will win the next election. You see, we have a secret weapon. Well, not that secret. Everyone in this hall knows it. I think everyone who will be at Labour conference knows it too. And our friends in the media definitely know it. Our secret weapon is Sir Keir Starmer. <laughs> you see, the British people have no enthusiasm for Sir Keir Starmer. They know that he believes in nothing. They know that he will say anything to anyone and then change his mind at the first sign of trouble. Helena, this was a really interesting moment for me because, you know, last year, 18 months ago, the Tories would have gone for Corbyn. They would have gone for the Labour left. But now they have Keir Starmer right in their crosshairs. They're going directly for him, aren't they? Yeah, 100%. I mean, what he represents is what they're going after. Like, he is part of the kind of people that, who represent the kind of people who she was discussing in this segment that we just watched here. Now, one thing you have to understand about right-wing politics is it bases most of the time around class collaboration in opposition to the left's belief in class unity and class conflict. And usually, for a very, very long time amongst conservative base, the classes that they wanted to collaborate were the upper classes with the middle classes. There were the, the stereotypical conservative voter was a middle-class homeowner, uh, very wealthy, aspirational pensioners, these kind of people. These people aren't going to be voting Conservative at the next election, not just because Keir Starmer has decided to try and win these people's votes by moving right on things like the economics and abandoning the kind of class conflict that saw the left through 2015 to 2019. But on top of that, their mortgages have massively increased and their pension funds have been decimated by the Conservative Party. This is the core Conservative voter base, and they are no longer sticking with the Conservatives. The Conservatives, indeed, are, are on top of that, are no longer the party of capital either. As you saw from what's been reported, many of the large, wealthy businesses, they're flocking to Labour's table to try and get their seat when Labour eventually come to power at the next election, should the polls stay as they are. So they've lost the middle class vote. They cannot get a collaboration between the upper class donors that they rely on and the more aristocratic people that they that, who they represent. They have to rely on a different class of people because un, under well, I would believe under Marxist analysis, perhaps I'm a Marxist, but the middle class and working class share common material interest in that they both work for a wage. 
But you want to be able to divide these people. And as they can no longer rely on the middle class, they have to rely on working class votes to be able to get there. Now, you had Matt Goodwin on your show. Uh, you debated him a quite a while back. And he postulated this theory that the people who control, have the power, this, this elite with luxury beliefs that Sola Bravan was referring to there, are not indeed people who have wealth, people who have economic power. He referred to people who have social power, that he kind of uh, alluded to people like you know, the lawyers, for example, BBC scriptwriters, um, people who work in human resources, as the people who have the kind of elite power that are enforcing beliefs that nobody else in the country wants, despite the fact that when you look at polling for these issues, really, a lot of the time we do agree with these things. For example, we score highest, for example, in Europe, uh, almost close to the top on people being happy living next to immigrants. So, for example, so these are views which are not commonly held by everybody. However, it's important for them to be able to rely on the kind of reactionary populist sentiment that would underpin not nowhere nowhere in the wet Tory side of the equation, the kind of the David Camerons and Theresa Mays of the recent past, because those people have all flocked to Labour now. Right? And she's not either. On top of that, she's not the kind of free marketeer type that you get from this trust. She's representing a third bid for the future of the Conservative Party in this more kind of nationalist populist sentiment. Now, earlier in the day, Braverman picked a different minority to target in this interview with Sky News. Trans women have no place in women's wards or indeed any safe space relating to biological women. And the health secretary is absolutely right to clarify and make it clear that biological men should not have uh, treatment in the same wards and in the same safe spaces as biological women. This is about protecting women's dignity and women's safety and women's privacy. Uh, and that's why I'm incredibly supportive and I welcome the announcement today by the Health Secretary. Now, the prompt for that intervention by Bravman was her colleague at Health Secretary Steve Barclay's conference speech, where he announced this. It does not mean ignoring patient voices, especially women's voices when it comes to the importance of biological sex in healthcare. If we do not get this right now, the long-term consequences could be very serious for the protection of women and future generations. And conference, I know as conservatives, we know what a woman is. And I know the vast majority, and the vast majority of NHS staff and patients do too. That is why I ordered a reversal of unacceptable changes to the NHS website that erase references to women for conditions such as cervical cancer and stopped the NHS ordering staff to declare pronouns to each new patient. And that is why today I am going further by announcing that we will change the NHS constitution following a consultation later this year to make sure we respect the privacy, dignity and safety of all patients, recognise the importance of dialog different biological needs and protect the rights of women. Now, this announcement is crazy. It's pure red meat. It would mean hospitals having to provide private rooms or wards for trans people who, according to the latest census, make up less than 0.5% of the entire population. But here's the thing. The NHS is already under so much strain. It's failing to meet its existing legal requirements to provide single-sex wards. In 2010, the Cameron government brought in compulsory single-sex wards in the NHS, with hospitals facing fines for mixing wards without a clinical reason. That was intended to respect the dignity of patients and protect women from the group that actually assaults them, which is overwhelmingly cis men. But figures from March show that the NHS in England breached the law more than 25,000 times in the preceding six months, with nearly 5,000 breaches in March alone. Each breach costs the NHS £250. But sure, let's focus on a tiny marginalised group and ignore the 7.6 million people in England waiting for treatment on the NHS or the 500 people who died waiting for ambulances in England last year. However, Barclay doesn't just see himself as a champion for women. He's also pitched himself as a tireless politician, working round the clock to improve NHS services, only to be blocked by sinister forces. If all of that seems like simple common sense, that's because it is. And yet, every step of the way, we have faced opposition 
from the usual suspects, when we were simply trying to do the best for patients. You probably saw some of them on your way in this morning. The militant BMA leadership whose strikes have resulted in countless cancelled appointments and pose a serious threat to the NHS's recovery from the pandemic. Their consultants and junior doctors committee are relentlessly demanding massive pay rises, even if that means diverting resources from patients, and despite junior doctors having already received a pay rise of up to 10.3%. But it doesn't end there. They are even threatening to take the government to court over our plans to let patients see their own test results on their own phones, rather than taking up a GP appointment. This clearly shows that the BMA leadership is not on the side of change and they are not on the side of patients. Barclay was speaking on the day that junior doctors and consultants were striking. Solidarity with them, I should say. Uh, you just heard the health secretary there say that they'd received a pay rise of up to 10.3%. But he's referring to the 6% pay rise forced on junior doctors and consultants in July. It came with an additional £1,200 added to junior doctors' salaries, amounting only, in the very best cases, to a 10% pay rise. The doctors have been demanding pay restoration, making up for the 25% drop in real-term salaries they've experienced since 2008. They say that's the only way to stop the NHS bleeding medics to other countries, with 40% of junior doctors saying they'd leave the NHS if they found another job. NHS England currently has over 8,000 vacancies for doctors, but the government is refusing to negotiate any Further, that's despite ongoing strikes being estimated to have cost the government over a billion pounds so far. And just a note on patient access to medical records. This isn't a new issue. The BMA has been arguing against it since 2015. They say that the government hasn't thought it through and are putting patient safety at risk from companies seeking access to confidential medical information. What do they know? They're only doctors. At the moment, patients can view some of their records in their GP practice, but the government's plan means that more vulnerable patients would only need to be conned out of their login details for their confidential records to be made public or exploited. Helena, a polling shows that one group of workers the public supports above all others when it comes to industrial action is NHS workers, particularly nurses, but also junior doctors too. That makes this quite a risky strategy, doesn't it? I mean, incredibly risky. I mean, in other words, you could describe it would be delusional. Uh, but I think there's some kind of three main reasons that I think that they're trying to continue to fight with the doctors. The first one is that they're just deficit hawks. They're continually looking at the balance sheet and going, we can't afford to put any more money into the NHS at this point. So we just can't afford it anymore because we're already, they're already basically over budget as far as the exchequer is concerned currently, given what the budget that was being announced most recently. Um, the second part on top of that is there's this potential. Sharon Graham was talking about this on Sky News over a year ago. This was during the nurses' strikes, where she said, I can't understand why Steve Barclay isn't coming to the table to negotiate. The only justification that she could think of was a deliberate desire to undermine the NHS, to undermine the NHS's belief as far as the public is concerned. I mean, there's plenty of manufactured consent going on at the moment about whether or not we should keep the NHS, whether it be Matthew Said on Question Time talking about changing the model, whether it be all of the think tanks being given loads of platforms on places like LBC and Question Time to be able to say that the NHS has failed as a model, or GB News constantly talking about it over and over and over again. There are plenty of reasons why this might be deliberate to try and undermine the existence of the NHS as a public institution. But really and truly, I just think that they're delusional in thinking that if they just let the strikes continue, at some point the public's opinion will turn against literally the most trusted professions in the country. You see the polling on this. The two most trusted professions in the country always polls doctors and nurses the highest. And you won't be surprised to find that the two lowest on that, on that list are journalists and politicians. So I think they really are fighting an unwinnable war if the third option is correct. Yeah, I think that's so true. And on the trans issue, Helena, we had a we had a super chat a moment ago. Somebody saying they felt sort of despondent. Well, what's your read on this? Because obviously, as you've said, this this stuff shifts the whole political debate in a very toxic, frankly, um, disgusting direction. But at the same time, that the Tories are very likely to be ejected at the next general election. So, 
If you're an activist in that space, or if you're somebody whose civil rights could be potentially compromised if the Tories win that next election, what's your read on that? Because it, it, there must be quite a conflicting set of emotions, I suppose. I'm not even that conflicted at all. I'm d deeply um, worried about the future for trans people in this country, because there is always a long-term plan when it comes to conservative policy. These are shrewd political actors. They don't make up policy off the cuff. They don't do things unless they have a long-term plan of the way in which they're trying to take these things further. Now, we saw with this weaponization of irregular migration across the channel, the small boats crisis, if you want to call it that, which was used by the Conservative Party as part of their long-term plan, at least some wings of the party, to try and undermine the um, European Convention on Human Rights. You've seen loads of... Um, browbeating uh, and also chest beating rather from Swala Grafman on the needs to leave uh, the ECHR. And I think the long-term plan with regards to this is that one of the main things that's going to come up against this plan to try and separate trans women from cis women on NHS wards is it's going to come up against provisions in the Equality Act from 2010. The Conservatives have been in power for 13 years and for half of that time they've had majorities. So they could have passed plenty of constitutional reform throughout that period and they've really done very little of it. Uh, and so when you look at the Human Rights Act, which already they were looking at changing with Dominic Raab's quote-unquote Bill of Rights, that's looking pretty dead in the water at the moment. You'd think that their next port of call, given how the populist types want to take the trans culture war very, very mainstream, you'd think that the Equality Act would be next on the agenda for them to try and change. There's already been updates from the Conservative-appointed uh, independent Equality and Human Rights Commission that's been in a lot of hot water recently for stories I won't go into now, with the current chair, Kishwa Faulkner, taking stances on what the definition of biological sex is, which essentially their only defense was, well, we want to define it in such a way as to exclude trans women. That was their only that was their only way that they could potentially define it when they were questioned. I believe it was by the United Nations, which is how far these things are going. So I think the long-term plan is to undermine the, uh, the Equality Act in general. The issue I have with that is that you say, oh, well, Labour might be winning the next election. We've already seen Keir Starmer is not starting a narrative. He's not creating any rhetoric. He's not building where the conversation should be. He's following where the conversation is. There are plenty of policies that the Conservatives have passed, really draconian, awful policies, like the Public Order Act, um, the gifting of the licence to drill uh, extra in the North Sea, which Labour have promised that they're not going to roll back on. Um, because they want to let things bed in, for example. That was the phraseology that they used. So I have no, zero, I have zero confidence that if they did amend the equality legislation to exclude trans people from those protections, I have zero confidence that Keir Starmer or Labour Party would would re revert it back to its condition from 2010. Not only because I believe they want to follow the conservative narrative, but because from what I'm maybe made to be aware of, there are plenty of senior Labour figures who are absolutely terrified of the gender criticals within their own party and refuse to be explicitly pro-trans. And you've seen many trans people, um, like Elle Folland has been very good on ca categorising this stuff from stats for lefties you're affiliated with, on how the Labour Party have basically given up on being a pro-trans voice, given the public backlash against trans people, which has been manufactured by the media and by conservative narratives. If you like what we're doing here at Navarra Media and you want to support our work in a more ongoing way, go to navarramedia.com forward slash support. Uh, this is really pressing, I think, what with today's news and stories. And, you know, we're seeing the, the Tories in, in full technicolor in terms of their depravity and their lack of really a vision, a positive vision for the future of this country. Next year is going to be absolutely critical. I know in politics, everybody says that all the time. Next year is going to be really, really important. Next year will be the most important year in politics in this country since 2019, since the last general election. That's not because we're telling you to vote for one party or the other. It's because we have, I think, a real crossroads on a bunch of issues like climate change, LGBT rights, civil rights in general, not that the Labour Party is a huge alternative, to help us push the dial in a progressive direction, and more importantly, to get accurate information and news gathering out there, help us do what we do. Help build people-powered media. And go to novaramedia.com forward slash support. And to make that really easy, the link is in the description. Next story. Rishi Sunak just can't stop giving interviews where he gets demolished. The first one I want to show you is from when the Prime Minister spoke to Good Morning Britain's Susanna Reid. A number of subjects were discussed, including the NHS. Waiting lists are at record highs right now, but they've been going up consistently since the Tories first returned to office in 2010. Now, Rishi Sunak has a novel explanation for why that is. 
The other thing you're trying to bring down, waiting lists. Waiting lists now, 7.68 million people waiting to start treatment at the end of July. The highest number since records began. The NHS is broken under your watch, isn't it? No, I absolutely don't think that's right. I come from an NHS family. My dad was a GP, my mum was a pharmacist. Almost 7.7 million people. I think everyone watching will know that we've had a pandemic, which is why waiting lists are also at a record high. 4.5 million people before the pandemic. You're talking about under my watch, so let's just talk about it. Waiting lists also at a record high in you Wales. You were a part of the government, by in the way, Scotland. before right. the pandemic. So everyone is having a tough time with waiting lists. But look, I can tell you, we are making progress on the longest waiters. We've put record funding into the NHS weeks after I became Prime Minister, billions of pounds. Ambulance waiting times have come down considerably. I remember when I first became Prime Minister, you'll remember, you reported on it a lot. It was taking people an hour and a half to get an ambulance. We brought that right down. Shocking. But when it, it comes to waiting shocking. lists... Look, I was I tell afraid you that, no, to call an ambulance. We're not talking about waiting lists. We're talking about waiting lists. So can I, can I address that? Can I address that? Yes. Because you, you talked about people like Bill. You talked about people yeah. struggling with their food bills. So the reason that waiting lists are going up is because we've got industrial action, because doctors are on strike. Now, I've sat down and tried to do no, the reasonable that thing. that might be one of the reasons. That is the number one reason. That, but if I could just finish, if I could just finish, it's really that important. That is not the number one reason. Yes, it there is. There was already no, no, a, a backlog. No, no, no. Sorry, before, the, back, before the, back, the pandemic, it was four and a half million. Uh, but if you look people. at what was happening to it, we were actually, we had stabilised it, it had stopped going up and it was forecast to start coming down until industrial action started. That's the, that's the reality. We were making such great progress, people. There were forecasts. There were forecasts. So apparently the Tories were doing so well on waiting lists before the strikes. But if that's the case, then why on earth were 4.4 million people on NHS waiting lists in June 2019 compared to 2.5 million when they came to power in 2010? Were strikes to blame for that figure almost doubling after nine years of Tory government? Because I've got news for you, Rishi. There were barely any strikes in that period. Or perhaps the Prime Minister thinks that waiting lists almost doubled for one reason between 2010 and 2019, and have almost doubled again, that number is now 7.6 million, for an entirely different reason between 2019 and 2023. It all gets very complicated. Because again, Rishi, I have news for you. The common variable throughout all of this entire period is the Conservatives being in charge. It's really that simple. Helena, this was a puzzling interaction, wasn't it? I'm actually going to dissent a little bit on this one. I actually feel quite, I can't, not sorry for Rishi Sunak, but I don't think it's his fault. I don't think it's necessarily his fault, right? So since he became Chancellor in 2019, we've seen the largest sustained increase in NHS funding since 2010. Now, I'm not saying this is good or is even good enough, but what I'm going to say is that there is one person and one person only to blame for current NHS waiting lists, and he's to blame for 95% of the problems facing this country, and it's George Osborne, right? All of these things he said about ring-fenced funding for the NHS. As a percentage of GDP, NHS funding continually decreased from 2010 to 2019. The only Chancellor who's actually increased NHS funding is Rishi Sunak. Even if you take away all the money that was just thrown away on dodgy contracts the Conservatives made, so obviously I'm not going to defend here. When you're at the point at which record waiting lists were already continually increasing, almost... Uh, kind of a diametrically opposed to the drop in funding over the course of the 2010s. There's, he's basically in a rock and a hard place where he has no solution because he can't just, they are uh, opposed to deficit spending. They are not modern monetary theorists, they are monetarists in the Conservative Party. So he's got, as far as he's concerned, no money left to be able to put into the NHS to be able to decrease these things. And there's been no capital investment in new capacity because of the fact that basically all capital investment from the, in the 2010 austerity period was siphoned away to be able to have these kind of very bare bones public services elsewhere. So he basically his only thing that he can really say is to blame the strikers and the pandemic because otherwise he would have to blame the only, the chancellors that preceded him. He'd have to blame Philip Hammond and he'd have to blame George Osborne. And of course, you can't really do that if you're the current prime minister. So he doesn't really have anywhere else that he can go on this one. Also this morning, it was an interview between Sunak and Sky News' Beth Rigby, with Rigby really turning the knife. Someone having a good week and enthusing the party members is your predecessor, Liz Truss. I was at her event yesterday, packed room. Are you pleased that she's come to conference? I, might, I remember you had the decency not to come turn up to hers last year. Absolutely. We're a broad church, we're a conservative party, people are together. But look, I'm out and about talking to hundreds of my members. 
all very supportive of what we're doing on net zero, all very supportive of what we're doing to support towns around the country, all very supportive of our increase to the national living wage to give a thousand pound pay rise to two million of the lowest paid people, all very supportive of what we're doing today, by the way, on Jade's law. Is it? Ensuring that interest this is really important because you haven't asked me about it. I mean, these are important announcements that we are making. People remember that horrific crime and it can't be right if someone murders their partner that they then have rights over their children. I, now, that just defies common sense. We're changing that. So these are the kind of things that we're getting but, on with. A lot of support but there, for that. But we're at Conservative Party conference. Liz Truss is talking about tax cuts. The party still loves her. It seems to be more than they love you. Does that sting? No, gosh, no. I just, don't I just care? You have a totally different version of what's happening. Do you not care? I that had this debate. There talking about I had this debate with everyone last summer. My views on this are really and you simple. Lost, of course, yeah, and you of lost last summer. And I'm sitting here as Prime Minister talking to you with, today. So with no that should tell you from the members. That should, that should tell you where we are. But look, this is simple. This is simple. So people do you right think now, people have forgotten what she did to the economy yeah, too quickly? If I could just answer. Right now, the number one challenge people have is the cost of living. Mm. That's why the first of my priorities was to halve inflation. That yes. is the best way to help people. Okay. The best tax cut that any Conservative can deliver is to bring inflation down. And you know what? That's what and Margaret Thatcher thought. That's what Nigel Prime Lawson Minister. thought. They were strong Conservatives. I'm following their I'm, lead. I'm really, and that's how we're going to help everyone. I'm, that was really tough to watch. I'm the leader. There was a popularity contest last year, didn't you know? Yes, we do know, Rishi. You lost. So it's difficult to appeal to your popularity. Let's go back to that interview. You made the point about your sitting here, Liz Trust is not, but you were not elected by members. The point is, at this conference, you are a man without a mandate. You haven't got a mandate from the country. You haven't got a mandate from your own party. You're now making huge decisions about scrapping part of HS2 without anyone apart from a core of your own MPs giving you this job. If you were really serious about the long term, why don't you just go to the country? Because that's not what the country wants. I go out and about every day. That is not what anybody wants. What people want is the politicians making a difference to their lives. Right. So I made a big decision on net zero. I'm saving all those families you're talking about, five, ten, fifteen thousand pounds. And if people want to criticize me for that, they should explain to those families why they think they need to pay an extra five, ten, fifteen grand to do things that aren't necessary for us to hit our net zero targets. I think the British people are completely and squarely behind my approach to net zero. They you're think it's the right long thing for the country. You're afraid right? of an election because you I'm just getting on and delivering for people. You can see that with net zero. You can see it with the number of boat crossings down this year by a fifth. You can see it with our progress on bringing inflation down, helping people. You can see it with the long-term workforce plan, hiring doctors and nurses for the future. These are all things that are going to change our country for the better. It's an example Prime of the, the type of leadership Thank that I'm you. bringing. I'm people want all of these things. Well, how do you know? I just know. I just know. In the 2019 general election, we had two parties, uh, Labour and the Tories, between them getting, what, about 80% of the vote, committed to net zero, committed to the kinds of things which Sunak is discarding at record pace. This is unprecedented. This is unprecedented for a politician to not only not have a mandate from an election, but not even from his own membership, to behave this decisively, this much at odds with his predecessors, particularly Boris Johnson, who did have a mandate. It completely rides roughshod over any democratic legitimacy our system has. Journalists are basically teasing him for being illegitimate, unpopular, and frankly, not very good. Next to Ray. Nigel Farage has attended Conservative Party conference for the first time in 30 years, and he's been getting quite a lot of attention for doing so. Speaking to the Today programme on BBC Radio 4, he said this. I've been very consistent in the things that I've said over quite a long time. I've never really shifted from those views, uh, whether it's regards, you know, borders, increasing population, attitudes towards small business, uh, net zero, taxes. What's interesting is there's now a wing of the Conservative Party that have woken up to these things and they're now saying them. Every moment you could be involved in this party if it went in the direction you wanted. Well, if you ask the delegates here, you might be surprised by the answer. Well, they think you already are. And I would suggest to you, not having an argument about the media, a serious point. Part of the importance of GB News is it might shape who the next leader of the Conservative Party is. I think that's already beginning now. You think, in your role as a broadcaster, yeah. you're reshaping the nature of the political debate on the right in Britain? I think so, and I think perhaps more effectively than I could do standing for election. GB News execs must be 
panicking when they hear that. So you think you can uh, politically influence the next election inside the Tories? Yeah, I think I can do that at GB News. That's definitely not what you want regulators to be hearing. I guess Farage uh, doesn't need to join the Tories if the Tories are becoming UKIP. Of course, there's a strong argument that Farage himself is the most influential Conservative in Britain since Margaret Thatcher. And just last week, the new statesman said he was the most powerful Conservative in the country, above even Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. He's done that without being a member of the Tories, like I say, since 1992. But could that be about to change? After all, Farage not only attended Tory conference this week, but was thrust centre stage and was even spotted dancing with Priti Patel. At this point of whether Farage is set to join the Tories was argued out on BBC Politics Live. I'm a friend of Nigel's. I think he's a very effective campaigner. And I think most of his political views are views I share. I think Nigel is broadly a Tory and always has been. Right. Yes, well... well if he wanted to join, I can't think his membership think would be refused. Uh, look, I think he's most recently been advocating voting for another political party. That is not consistent with being a member of the Conservative Party. Let me just repeat the question from Andrew. The question was, would you welcome Nigel Farage into the Conservative Party? No, I don't think I would, because right. uh, I think he's uh, repeatedly, for the last uh, 30 years or more, uh, advocated voting for other political parties. I think he said he doesn't want to see the Conservative Party succeed, so I don't think I would. But we're always delighted if people cross the floor. If a Labour member who'd well, been a Labour member not for in 30 the House years of Commons, and came it? across and said, I'd like to be a Tory, we'd be absolutely thrilled to pieces. Now in that clip, Jacob Rees-Mogg said he is friends with Farage. They work alongside each other at GB News with shows back to back, so that's hardly a surprise. So it's hard to believe Farage didn't already know Rees-Mogg's opinions on this matter. It's even possible he knew what he would say on television. Later, speaking to GB News, where both Farage and Rees-Mogg have shows, Rishi Sunak said this. You may have noticed Nigel Farage is wandering around your conference, first time in decades. Would you have him back as a member of the Tory party? Yeah, the, the Tory party is a very broad church, right? I welcome lots of people who want to subscribe to, our, to our values. So Rhys-Mogg says yes, Greg Hans says no, and Rishi Sunak says maybe. So could Farage be on the cusp of rejoining the Tories? Remember, he left in 1992. Well, the man himself went on to say this to Christopher Hope, GB News' political editor. Before I arrived here yesterday, people were saying, would they even let me in through the front door? <laughs> now you're saying, would he let me in the party? Um, would you, yes or no, come on, well, it's, well exclusive. What party? Will would you I, join it? Would I want to join a party that's put the tax rate up to the highest in over 70 years, that has allowed net migration to run at over half a million a year, uh, that has not used Brexit to deregulate and help small businesses? No, no and no. But well, you're here as a journalist, you're here yes. talking about things. Yes. Join the Tories. Do things. Well, I tell you what, I achieved a lot more outside of the Tory party than I ever could have done from within it. Um, and, and actually, you know, what I'm seeing here are ideas that I've talked about. You know, from 2019, when net zero was passed into law without even a without vote. Without a vote, Parliament, crucial. I've said the agenda's mad, it's unfair. If you're going to do this to us, we should have a referendum on it. Yeah. Um, I've been arguing about ECHR. It should yeah. have been part of the Brexit deal. So what I'm seeing, Chris, I'm seeing a wing of the Conservative Party who are now basically saying what I've been saying yeah. for many, many That's years. That's why they want you back in. And so, well, half the, party, <laughs> half the party would love me in. The other half would blackball me. A few minutes later, Farage shared that clip on Twitter, adding this. Why would I join a Conservative Party that doesn't believe in anything? Pretty decisive answer there. So what kind of game is being played here? Are Rhys Mogg, Farage and GB News trying to publicly humiliate the Prime Minister? And if you listened carefully to what Farage told Hope, you would have heard the words, at the moment. At the moment? What has to change before you decide to join? All of this serves to underscore who is in charge of the right at the moment, and it certainly isn't the Prime Minister. Helena, what's the betting Farage joins the Tories, but only after 2024? So there's three things about Nigel Farage. First of all, he's very, very outspoken. Secondly, he's always ideologically consistent. And third of all, he always has a plan. He had a very long-term plan, hence why UKIP did what they did. They never got any seats apart from when Douglas Carswell defected to UKIP. And outside of that, they've never been electorally successful. But they were electorally successful in being able to force David Cameron to have a referendum on the European Union. They got their Brexit without winning anything more than one seat 
in an election. So he's clearly a man who knows the way that we, that the political system in this country works and how to influence it, even if it's from the outside. As he pointed out astutely there, that he's been able to have much more influence outside of the, con the Conservative Party than within it. Now, of course, he then formed the Brexit Party afterwards because he felt he was being betrayed by both May and then subsequently Boris Johnson, given that the kind of main thrust of what Reform UK is saying right now, which is the uh, successor to the Brexit Party, is that we've not really done Brexit properly. Most firstly, because we haven't done all of the free market things that he wants to do. But on the second hand is that Northern Ireland is still technically a part of the single market. The Windsor framework and the Northern Ireland protocol were things that was a big wedge between the Brexiteers of Boris Johnson ilk and the Brexiteers of Nigel Farage's ilk. And Whittacombe has been plenty of times as a Reform UK member on GB News talking about leaving Northern Ireland behind and separating the United Kingdom with the hard border down the Irish Sea, potentially, that was happening at the time. So he views, and Sunak is the Windsor Framework uh, architect, so he views him as a traitor, I'm in, well, I can only assume as well, given that it follows that same kind of logic. So this is why Reform UK have been attacking the Conservatives very, very strongly. It's not like 2019 where the Brexit party wanted to ensure that Brexit happened by putting Boris Johnson into power by only running against Corbyn. They're not doing that this time round. Ben Habib, who's another person who is very high up in Reform UK, was on GB News and he explicitly said there can be no reward for incumbency for people who fail. There can no be no reward of incumbency for failure. And they intend to stand Reform UK candidates against the Conservatives in every single seat in the country. They clearly are trying to weaken the Conservative Party, who, the, who Farage, I'm assuming, and Tyson people of that ilk, believe are no longer Conservative. Richard Tice even described them as being a socialist party, if you could believe such a thing. Now, what this means is, is that come the next election, when Nigel Farage, is, I think, and people from Reform UK have openly said they want to ensure that the Tories lose as a punishment for their failures in their eyes, so that there can be a remaking of the Conservative Party. Nigel Farage has admitted it in these segments that we've watched. There is a wing of the Conservative Party that now agrees with him. They agree with him on the free market ideas. They agree with him on the hard version of Brexit. They agree with him on the issues with regards to immigration. It may be a kind of hodgepodge of different sects of the Conservative Party, but all of the wet Tories who are in charge throughout the time when he was on the outside looking in, they're now nowhere near the ascendancy within the party. So if there is a chance for him to become a Conservative politician again, it can only be after his, what I can only assume is a deliberate desire to destroy the party from the outside so that he can ascend from the party from the inside. But again, this can only be speculation, but it seems reasonable given what Reform UK have been doing and saying. Yeah, I think that's entirely right, Helena. I think he would join the Conservative Party if he thought there was a possibility of him leading it. And there's food for thought. Uh, there's a fascinating article on all of this over at the Mail. They write that a former cabinet minister has said Farage would, quote, easily win a Tory leadership election if he made it to the membership, but Rishi would never let him on the candidate list. The source to the Mail added this. He would be a dominant figure and he couldn't toe the line. He would be like the scorpion crossing the river on the back of the fox. He would sting you because that's just what he does. We should probably adopt the policies, but not the man. But Litchfield MP and Michael Fabricant disagreed. He said this to GB News. I think we should get on our hands and knees and beg him to rejoin. We should award him a knighthood that he should have had years ago. Then there's Tim Montgomery. He's the founder of Conservative Home and a former speechwriter for William Hague. He tweeted this. I walked into conference early with Nigel Farage. She got quite the reception. I'm convinced party members would choose him as leader if they could. And here's Farage, again, being quite clear that his war isn't just against Labour, but a chunk of Tory MPs too. Just having walked around here, talking to ordinary people, Conservative Party members, for goodness sake, I mean, they know what Conservative Party members, by and large, want, and they do want controls yeah. to yeah. legal immigration, and they want to stop the boats. And yeah. Yet they're scared, you think, to go on stage and say that. They've been scared for years. To an audience full of people who would stand up and applaud. <laughs> yeah. But they, 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 you know, they, they, it, it is the social unacceptability of saying these things. And what's really interesting, in 13 years of Conservative government, the centre of gravity on these debates has shifted so far to the left, it's almost unbelievable. I mean, there were things that David Blunkett was saying as Home Secretary 20 years ago that would now be called with the BBC far right. Yeah. That is how far to the left we've gone. But it also reflects the, the type of people in politics 
most of the MPs here are literally career politicians. It'll be the same next week at the Labour conference. They're in it for a career, not for the change they can bring or the conviction that they hold. Really extraordinary. Uh, I never thought that Farage would join the Conservatives. I really thought that his political career had reached its climax with Brexit. Maybe not. Maybe there is an even bigger chapter to come. Next to Ray. If we've learned anything about late-stage Toryism, it's that they'll say just about anything to make it look as if they're in control. We've already seen the Prime Minister promising to ditch policies that never existed, like the seven bins in your home and compulsory car sharing. But now Transport Minister Mark Harper has gone even further, pledging to ban a threat to liberty that exists only in the minds of the most fringe hysterics. First of all, I'm calling time on the misuse of so-called 15-minute cities. Now, there's nothing wrong with making sure people can walk or cycle to the shops or school. That's traditional town planning. But what is different, what is sinister, and what we shouldn't tolerate is the idea that local councils can decide how often you go to the shops and that they ration who uses the roads and when, and they police it all with CCTV. Now, let me just reassure everyone out there who's watching and listening. There is no council anywhere in the country, planning to tell you how often you can go to the shops. There is not going to be a council official saying, sorry, Mr. Smith, you can't go to the co-op today. Imagine the backlash from the supermarkets for a start. Yes, councils everywhere are trying to reduce car use. That's true. But the idea that that means they're also trying to control the population by restricting them to their local areas is the territory of conspiracy theorists, like this guy. When you said the stuff about the 10-minute city, I thought about like the kind of tags you wear if you're sort of convicted of a, like, you know, tags that will buzz or inform people. And if we're all, if we're all carrying digital IDs then our actions and movements would be easier to monitor. And it seems to me that they're using the climate change narrative to introduce the possibility of lockdowns where, where ordinary people, not these guys who fly around on private jets, uh, you know, at a whim, will have travel restricted. And it seems as well, that, and I'm even on Rumble, I'm not suggesting that the pandemic was not a, a legitimate um, you know, biomedical event, but that you can see how they have piloted the idea of lockdowns. The original concept of a 15-minute city was invented by urban planner Carlo Moreno. And the idea is a simple one. Plan towns so that most daily necessities and amenities are about a 15-minute walk or bike ride away. Sounds nice. That is, after all, how places worked before the arrival of the car. In response to Harper's speech yesterday, Moreno issued a statement appealing to Rishi Sunak to control his ministers, saying this. Personally, as the initiator of the 15-minute city concept, which is widely recognized internationally, I feel compelled to express my concerns. Last spring, my family and I faced harassment, including death threats, from conspiracy theorists fueled by false information, promptly debunked by reputable media outlets. Associating the 15-minute city again with so-called liberty-restricting measures is tantamount to aligning with the most radical and anti-democratic elements of this movement. The conspiracy theory isn't a joke. In Oxford last year, city councillors received torrents of abuse, including death threats, after conspiracy theorists accused them of trying to lock the population down. What actually happened was that they approved six traffic filters, aiming to divert cars away from congested roads at peak times. It wasn't just the transport secretary endorsing a dangerous conspiracy theory either. On Radio 4, junior minister Andrew Bowie said this. We do not want local authorities uh, dictating to people that they must uh, uh, choose to have access to services within within 15 minutes right. of uh, their house or however often they might need to access those services. That's what Mark Harper was saying today. Of course we want more services to be available locally and closer to where people exactly. live. That's an eminently conservative thing uh, to support, but we're not going to dictate to people that they must uh, uh, only access a service or go shopping right. within a 15-minute... I understand uh, you. Uh, I hear you. But this really gets to the heart of where the Conservative Party is positioning itself and how it is trying to conduct a debate. Nobody is proposing that they'll dictate whether you have to go within 15 minutes. They're saying, wouldn't it be nice if you could get to a shop within 15 minutes? You're not disagreeing with that. Labour are not disagreeing with that. There's no argument over that. No one is saying you have to go to the shop on a Tuesday morning and your shift is this and you can't go to that one. 
that that's just not on the agenda. So, so why, I suppose, why make the argument? Pretend there's an argument about somebody dictating how often you can go to the shops. Yeah, but people are people are concerned. Their liberties are going to but be infringed. Because you're people making the concerns. You're, you're spreading conspiracy theories, aren't you? There is no nonsense. No... I mean, these are proposals we're seeing Where's... from local authorities up and down the country to create 15-minute neighbourhoods and communities. And whilst we support the access of services at the local, at, the, at, the, at a very local level, easily accessible by as many people as possible in their local area, what we don't want is local authorities moving down the route, which could happen, of them dictating to people where they must access services. That is what Mark Harper was saying today, and that is what we're acting against. The theory was repeated on BBC and Newsnight, which led to this awkward moment for Treasury Secretary Gareth Davies. It was about 15 minute cities. He said, what is sinister and what we shouldn't tolerate is the idea that local councils can decide how often you go to the shops. Which council is proposing that they will decide how often people can go to the shops? I'm afraid I missed that speech. Um, I'll have to look into why uh, he said that and what the example please, please is, do, but I'm going to have to go back we, to We've searched and we not, cannot okay. find a council that's proposing that. What's even more embarrassing is that 15-minute cities already exist. In the Netherlands' fourth-largest city, Utrecht, 100% of the population can access all necessities within a 15-minute bike ride. Helena, where does this obsession against having nicer cities, nicer things, a nicer built environment come from? Now... I'm going to go out on a limb. I have a bit of a theory about this one. And it's basically the theory of the mainstream conspiracy theorist. Now, think, picture the kind of person, it would get boomer types that we kind of believe in this stuff, who are usually kind of average kind of middle class people who for a very, very long time live very, very comfortably. These people most likely do drive because they are inflicted with the terrible affliction of car brain that these people have, where the, how, how they can get conspiracy theories out of traffic filters because they're so used to all of our central, our city planning rather, sorry, being entirely beholden to motorists. And so, you know, there's basically very few transport links that are very, very good outside of the kind of major cities in this country, really and truly, and even then only really kind of in the centre rather than in the outskirts and the suburbs as well. And so they've had supremacy in that area for ages. So any pushback about, well, maybe we should uh, we should prioritise pedestrians, maybe we should prioritise the tram or the bus or whatever, anything like that, it immediately triggers them into thinking, well, this must be a conspiracy against me because I used to have control over all of this part of the city, but now my, my interests are being infringed on. Now, these kind of people really kind of started blooming during the pandemic period, because this was a confluence of multiple different things. First of all, the initiation of lockdown, which was an infringement upon civil liberties that I believe was necessary to control the pandemic, but it did involve that kind of special action in the case of a once in a lifetime pandemic. It also coincided with the time at which the neoliberal kind of class that we have been eating up assets of working class people and poor people for decades now at this point have run out of assets to be able to chew through. So they're starting to chew through middle class people's assets instead. And so these people who've kind of been sold on capitalism for a very, very long time have found that this security that they are expecting is kind of starting to wane. And because of the pandemic happening at the same time, they're struggling to deal with the entropic nature of society and of the economy. And because we were all locked at home for this time, a lot of these people started getting very involved in social media, Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, YouTube, for example. We've all heard of going down the YouTube rabbit hole. And this is where these conspiracy theory grifters, it comes from a very kind of big tent conspiracy about the World Economic Forum. This idea that they are exerting influence over governments in against national sovereignty and implementing things and controls to stop people doing what they want, whether it be in the interest of climate or in the interest of future pandemic, for example. And they these people genuinely believe this stuff. In fact, they accuse, if you ever venture into the TikTok and YouTube comments, which I do for my own for my own fault, these people will call Rishi Sunak a puppet of the World Economic Forum. So I think this is a desire from the conservatives by using this rhetoric to try and re, um, stop those fears from continuing of Rishi Sunak being a man of the World Economic Forum. Because really and truly, it is just traffic filters. But because people have had so much of their, you know, their, their comfortable lives living at home and motoring upended by the nature of the pandemic and the nature of the way in which neoliberal capitalism has kind of cannibalized so much of society, they have to be able to grasp. And because these people have no material understanding, no materialist concept of why structures might do this, they have to pin, up, pin it on some kind of fifth column, some kind of cabal, theoretically, that they believe is undermining the world that they used to know that doesn't exist anymore. And so 
whatever the, the conspiracy theorist grifters can push to them, Naomi Klein's doppelganger is really good on explaining these things, um, they will just latch onto it to be able to have an easy, simple explanation as to why loads of parts of society are just kind of crumbling around them, really. That's my theory. I don't know what you think about that, Aaron. Well, I, I don't know if I have a theory. I, I just find it really strange that particularly conservatives who are meant to like tradition, right, are rallying against the idea that the built environment should look like it did before the arrival of the car. You know, I look at pictures, for instance, of a place like Derby or Birmingham or Liverpool um, before really the, at the start of the 20th century. And I think those cities looked better for a bunch of reasons, but primarily because I think the architecture was significantly nicer. I think the built environment integrated commercial and residential very well. There was what's called, you know, gentle density, things like mansion blocks and whatnot, terraced houses. Um, obviously, those were slums. They could have been upgraded, as they often were in places like Islington, rather than being knocked down. And they make lovely family homes now. I don't quite understand why a conservative, who would clearly value tradition, traditional architecture, you know, communities, place, but they seemingly also want, you know, retail parks and people having to be in a traffic jam two hours to get to work. It, it strikes me as very, very strange. And it really is that simple, guys. You don't have to like LTNs. You don't have to like bike lanes. You don't have to like ULEs. You don't have to like any of these things. You can think they're bad, but the idea is part of an integrated conspiracy to stop people driving places is, is surreal to me, frankly. Final story. The Tories have a lot of obsessions. Migration, climate change, or rather it not happening, putting Margaret Thatcher's face on t-shirts, kids identifying as cats. But at this Tory conference, a new threat has emerged. Have a listen to Environment Secretary Therese Coffey. Our farmers produce the best food in the world to the highest animal welfare standards. But there are some green zealots who think our farmers should stop rearing livestock and instead we should eat fake meat. Conference, regardless of what the zealots say, and by the way, I'm being taken to court in relation to this right now, I'm absolutely not going to tell anyone that they should not eat meat. Fake meat might be okay for astronauts, but when people think of a meat feast, I want them to be thinking about our great Welsh lamb, our Aberdeen Angus beef, our saddleback pork, not some pizza topping. It's extraordinary to see a serving environment minister use her time at conference to discuss vegetarianism as though it were a potential national policy or threat to national security. Of course, the real purpose of that bit of her speech was to get in the term eco-zealots, just, just get it in there, signalling allegiance to Tory climate sceptics or indeed deniers. That kind of posturing didn't work out for one minister, though. The new Net Zero Secretary, Claire Coutinho, also brought up meat in her conference speech. Here's Sophie Ridge asking her about it. I just want to read a bit of your speech to you, because there was some, one section of it that really struck me. You said, it's no wonder Labour seems so relaxed about taxing meat. So Keir Starmer doesn't eat it, and Ed Miliband is clearly scarred by his encounter with a bacon sandwich. Did you write, you didn't write that, did you? I did actually write that. I think, you know, it's good to have a, a, a light moment in your speech as well. But the point is actually... proposing a meat tax. The point is actually very serious. So some of the things that Labour are proposing are incredibly hard for working families. So whether you have... Whether you have things like... meat tax? That's what you're saying here. Well, so the point is... They are proposing things which are pushing families too hard. So you've got things like the ULES tax That's expansion, tax. which does cost families £12.50 a day. It's not tax, is it? But that is very difficult. And they've got things like proposing that you would decarbonise the electricity grid by 2030 again, which would result in very difficult choices for also families tax. and their plans to push up inflation by borrowing £28 billion. So the point that I was making is quite serious. Yes, that was a lighthearted moment in the speech, but the point is actually deadly serious that if you push people too far in this country, you will lose the cause of climate change, something that I'm passionate about because I think it's really important that we get there. But genuinely, what? there isn't a meat tax. Well, actually, if you try and push too hard, what you do end up with is people, and by the way, this has been part of the debate, talking about discouraging people from eating meat. Now, as someone who's worked in government for some time, I can tell you when people, no tell, people, when people tell you that they want to you discourage people from eating meat, what they mean is Where do you say that? 
So when they talk about moving at the pace that they're moving, what they're, what they're implying is that difficult choices will have to be made. And we know from having carefully safeguarded this debate that when people talk about trying to do things faster and quicker, they do talk about things like discouraging people um, from eating meat. Keir Starmer doesn't ever tell people exactly what he thinks, which is part of the problem. And what we have tried to do is set out a really clear agenda on net zero so people know where we stand, which is making sure that we can get to these ambitious targets, but also protecting families. That was probably the most bizarre interview of a very bizarre several days with the Tories. And I mean, actually, let's just really get to the, the, the meat here. The meat of the story, or the meat of what she was saying, the point which is a lie, a complete falsehood, is just a bit of light relief. I was just trying to lighten up the speech. Just a few conspiracy theories here, a few lies there. And I think one of the reasons why Sophie Ridge is just so taken back there is that they're two women of a similar age. They could be friends in different social circles, right? They're, you know, similar age university backgrounds, I presume, similar interests, politics media, journalism, you know, similar worlds. And I think Sophie Ridge is kind of like, you sound insane. I, in another world, I'd probably be friends with you and like, we really get on. You sound crazy. This is a crazy thing to be talking about. That said, who remembers Emma Barnett? She went on the attack against Labour in the last general election saying they would nationalise sausages. One thing I don't quite understand is why the same people attacking Coutinho on this, quite rightly, about made up mad conspiracy theories about meat being taxed or banned, that was said by somebody at the BBC who then after the 2019 election got a promotion. She presented Women's Hour as a result of that stunning journalism. Farming Minister Mark Spencer has backed Coutinho. He said this, I think there's been a lot of discussion, particularly on the left of politics, about a meat tax. Lefties love regulation and they love to regulate. They love to put in extra rules and I just... I rub up against that sort of stuff, I suppose. I believe in my constituents and their ability to make informed decisions and logical decisions. And I don't like to over-regulate. I'd rather over-educate. If only. That is the Minister for Farming. His view on politics is basically, yeah, I reckon they do that. Yeah, yeah. I reckon they do that. Fuck it. Attack them for it. Say they've done it. Doesn't matter anyway. What's the truth? Helena, uh, we've talked about some ridiculous stories today, frankly. What did you make of that interview with Claire Coutinho, who's seen really as a up-and-coming technocrat on the Conservative front bench? Well, yeah, literally, they were talking about her previously in response to Rishi Sunak's kind of delay on net zero, saying, well, look at our new net zero minister, Claire Coutinho. She's a rising star of the party. I think she's going to do great work in, in her, what's probably her first real, like, high-profile public appearance. She's been made to look like not just a novice, but also an idiot by Sophie Ridge. And to be honest, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pour one out for Sophie Ridge. I've been absolutely crying and calling out for a Paxman-type figure in the media to take these very obvious lies about a meat tax. So to, to clarify, this idea of a meat tax that Rishi Sunak was talking about at his net zero announcement, there was one line in the Climate Change Committee in Parliament that said, in a discussion about you know, meat consumption, said there needed to be demand-side policy to try and move people away, to try and decrease meat consumption, right? demand-side policy. That's it. One line in a big document, a big discussion. That was the only thing that they used as evidence of the idea that there was ever going to be a meat tax. And it wasn't even Keir Starmer who said that. That was just a general note from the Climate Change Committee. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. Like, she is supposed to be this up-and-coming new minister, and she's looked awful. And we just need more kind of Paxman figures from the concert for, against when when interviewing any you know member of either party, both Labour and Conservative, have, have essentially just told so many lies, so many falsehoods, so many mistruths, so many misdirections. Or indeed, as we've seen from Rishi Sunak over all of the interviews he's done in the last week, not even answering the question. Because both sides of each party will do this, whether it be because Labour's have broken pledges or Tories have made up policies on the fly. And journalists just for a very, very long time, because they're pally, the journalists are pally, they all want to have access. So they don't want to, they don't want to piss off the, the, uh, the MPs too much, lest they lose that access, not be the preferential interview. We've already seen the Tories are happy to just ensure that they only get interviews from GB News and The Telegraph. Um, and but we do need more kind of Paxman type interview. Just like no, stop it. Answer the question, yes or no. Did you lie? Did you not? 
is, I mean, that Coutinho moment was a very much a uh, did you threaten to overrule him, Michael Howard moment, if ever I've seen one. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it, that there isn't more journalists, there aren't more journalists who are willing to sort of play with a straight bat against both sides and just just be robust. You've had a few people like that, but they haven't really been on um, haven't really been on TV. You get that on radio a bit, including BBC Radio Four a little bit, but on broadcast journalism, it's very rare. Sophie Rich does it sometimes. I have to say, of all the sort of anchors in um, broadcast TV, I think she's probably the best. She's probably the best. I, I, I'm I'm sure I've tweeted numerous times. How could you do this? How could you say this? You let them off, whatever. Look, she's a lot better than Laura Koonsberg. My goodness. This was a great show. Um, we went over an hour because it's Tory conference, but tomorrow, I believe, is Rishi Sunak's speech. Uh, so you're definitely going to want to join us for that. Helena, you have been brilliant, by the way. Thanks for joining me tonight. Thank you. I must appreciate I'm always welcome to come on. It's been an absolute blast. And I think we've really got into the meat, haha, of a lot of those issues. <laughs> we very much uh, did. Uh, Thanks everyone for watching this evening. I want to make another meat joke. I won't. You've had enough meat-related political content for 24 hours, probably for the next several months. Uh, and like I say, come back tomorrow because we'll have Michael Walker reflecting on the Tory conference again, and in particular, Rishi Sunak's speech. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.